We'll hear argument next in case 1298, Delia v. EMA. Mr. Madry. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Medicaid Act requires states to take reasonable measures to seek reimbursement from liable third parties, and that states require recipients to assign their rights for to payment for medical care. The Act does not direct how a state must determine what portion of a recipient's third-party recovery is properly attributable to past medical expenses. North Carolina's procedure establishes — know that ex ante? Excuse me? How could you ever know that ex ante? I mean, without looking at the individual facts of a case, the 30 percent is going to be under-inclusive in some circumstances, over-inclusive in others. So how do you deal with our holding that you're not entitled to um, the over-inclusive portion? Uh, Justice Sotomayor, the, the answer to that depends on whether the State has to predict with certainty uh, the amount. Life is never certain. And, and um, it's — so I, I don't even go to that issue. Um, I go just simply to the question, how can you ex ante? Uh, predict, particularly with a statute that wasn't based on any empirical data, that 30 percent normally is the right amount. You just pick it out of the air. You could pick 40, 50, 60. How do we draw the line? Your Honor, the, the statute doesn't predict. It defines. It tells the recipient how much out of a recovery they must allocate to satisfy the repayment obligation. If it were a prediction, that would make it a presumption, and you'd have to defend it as such. But here, the, the statute defines the portion that the State, as a condition of extending the Medicaid benefits, tells the recipient they must allocate. Wait, they, they must allocate? I mean, are, is the State saying you do not own that 30 percent of the recovery? So you never get a property right in it so that there's never any problem about asserting a lien against it. I thought that's what's going on here. And I, I think that's sort of disguised by talking about allocation. I thought the State is saying, as to 30 percent of the recovery, you have no property right in it. Is, is it not saying that? If I, am I wrong? Your Honor, the, the State is saying that as to the amount of Medicaid benefits provided, the State has a right of recovery. And it says that of any third party maybe, maybe you didn't hear my, my question. My question is, is the State saying that you have no property right in the 30 percent? The State has the right to recover that portion. So Let me ask my question again. Is the State saying that you have no property right in the 30 percent? I think that can be answered yes or no. And yes, Your Honor, the okay. position would be there is no property right in that in that percentage that the State has conditioned the, the extension of benefits on. Now, how does it have a right to, to announce that in a FILA case or in a Jones Act case, where those injured parties, they have a property right in their protection, but this statute applies to that recovery as well? If, so, those, if those litigants are Medicaid recipients, it applies to them as a condition of having received the, the State Medicaid uh, so they can deny a, re a litigant a property right in that recovery. As I don't know how you can go in and ask for something you don't know. 
I, I don't know how the plaintiff can go in and litigate a case if they don't have a property interest that they can then assign to someone else. I've never heard of such a thing, how they would have standing to sue on your behalf if they have no property interest in the recovery. Your Honor, I'm, I'm confused by the question. I was — How do you sue for something you have no property interest in? Uh, I, I don't know how you sue for something you don't have a property interest in, Your Honor. So go back to Justice Scalia's question. The, the, the 30, there has to be some interest in the 30 percent by the plaintiff. The, the 30 percent attaches upon the recovery from a third party. The, the cause of action is for uh, whatever sources of injury that individual would have. To the extent the recovery is for medical expenses previously paid for by Medicaid, that's what the state's interest. Could I just clarify one point? Does this rule preclude parties, as we said in Auburn, from stipulating to a settlement at all? No, Your Honor. Your brief is not clear on that. Um, they can still stipulate. It's only if after the stipulation it hasn't been allocated that you can recover? Your Honor, the stipulation must include the State as a party to it for it to be binding. That's the decision. So what you're, say- what you're basically now saying is that there can never be a stipulation? There could be an advance agreement, Your Honor. But you're saying that the, two- that the parties cannot enter into a stipulation? If the parties are private litigants, a plaintiff and a defendant in a medical malpractice action, their, their stipulation doesn't bind the State. All parties to this case agree that — It can bind the parties for other purposes, I assume. There are other purposes for which the distinction between uh, pain and suffering and uh, medical expenses might make a difference, right? What, what, what if the parties agree that it's 50-50? Um, would the State take 50 percent then, or is the State still limited to 30? Your Honor, the statutory percentage applies in that situation as well. The 33 percent uh, cap would apply. Okay. Again, it, the State's interest is the amount of the Medicaid benefits it provided capped at 33 percent of the recovery. General, how did you come up with 33? Why 33? Why not 10 or 60 or 90? Why, why, how did you come up with the number? The, the North Carolina General Assembly first enacted it as it relates to Medicaid in 1988. It reflects a legislative history in North Carolina going back to 1935 with a, a statutory lien applicable to medical providers in, in civil actions. It became specifically applicable to Medicaid uh, scenario in the 1988 provision. But what if the, this case is tried to a verdict and there's a special verdict and then, uh, the jury says that uh, 10 percent was uh, medical expenses? Would the, the statute would override that? Your Honor, I believe the judge imposing judgment following that jury verdict would have to conform the verdict to the law, just as if the verdict had said there was a hundred uh, — excuse me, a million dollars in punitive damages when there's a statutory cap of, of 500000 for punitive damages. The judge would have to conform the verdict to the applicable law. What's the difference between that case and, and Auburn, where, where, where you have — where the State has agreed that a certain amount is attributable to medical expenses? And in this hypothetical, the, the jury has determined that a certain amount uh, constitutes medical expenses. What's the difference between well, in, those two? Well, in the jury verdict scenario, the state's not a party to that, 
and didn't commit to the to the uh, portion that that was attributable to medical expenses. The jury doesn't have any authority to uh, countervene uh, the statute to to enter a, a verdict uh, in violation of of the statutory requirement. And and here the statute tells the uh, Medicaid recipient in advance how much of any recovery, whether that be from a settlement or a verdict, uh, has to be allocated and paid back to the state. Well, isn't the reasoning of Alborn that when we know to a certainty how much uh, the medical expenses were and what, what part of the judgment represents or the settlement represents medical expenses, then only that much uh, can be assigned to the, for, to the government? And, and I don't see the difference between that and the verdict situation. Well, the verdict situation would depend upon what uh, would be in the hands of the parties to the lawsuit, what evidence was presented, uh, what, what theories were advanced. Well, the State would not have any control over that. It would well, be but it can, it can participate in that process, can't it? It's, it's money at issue. The State can initiate a lawsuit on behalf of its, of its uh, medical claim by virtue of the subrogation and the assignment of the rights. It could participate in advance or it could participate afterwards. But that doesn't come without costs, because, of course, if the State participates on its own in advance, it would be for the full amount of the medical payments. General, here, I'm sorry. Here, $1.9 million, and, and the 33 percent cap would have no application. That applies only to amounts recovered by a, a, a recipient from a third party. General, you were, you were uh, telling me a little bit about the history of the statute, but why 30? Is there any indication of why the State picked 30? Your Honor, historically, 33 uh, percent or three times the medicals was the, the rule of thumb used in, in tort actions, that, that parties used that as the, the, the methodology, the, the way to come up with a value to the case, with the theory being 33 percent for the medicals, 33 percent for attorney's fees, and 33 percent to the victim. That well, was that if, was the If that's where it comes from, then it does relate to a kind of estimate, doesn't it? Historically, it does. It's been the policy of the State of North Carolina for almost a century. Uh, as I referenced uh, the, the lien statutes that apply generally to, to tort actions, to civil recoveries, to protect the providers of medical uh, services, in those cases date back to 1935. Will you, the, can I ask you a, a somewhat technical, and I appreciate your paying attention because it's hard for me to keep all this in my mind. Right. Now, as my understanding of North Carolina, everyone accepts the rule, and North Carolina agrees, that if you in, uh, in, 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 in uh, North Carolina, you advance to the victim $50,000 in medical expenses. Now, you want, you're never going to get more than that back, and you don't want more than that back. Now, the victim and the tortfeasor enter into a settlement. And you have a rule, and the rule is you will never get more than 50,000 or 33 percent, whichever is less. That's true, whichever is less. So if, a, if the settlement is for $100,000, you're not going to take more than 33, though you've advanced 50. Okay. So you have basically three situations. The first situation is where a judge has said, you know what? I find that only $10,000 of this settlement is for medical expenses. In that case, you take 10000 no more. Is that right? No, Your Honor. 
Oh, well, I got the impression that if there was a judicial — there are three situations. One is there's a judicial finding that only 10 percent uh, was medical. And the second is the situation where they stipulate that only 10 percent is for medical. And the third situation is this situation, namely there is no stipulation and there is no judicial finding. So my thought, which is wrong, I guess, is if the judge says it's 10 percent, you won't take more than 10 percent. That if, in fact, it's a stipulation of 10 percent, North Carolina courts have not yet decided that. And that this is a case where there is no stipulation and no judicial finding. Now, you're telling me I have that wrong. So you explain what the North Carolina is on that, because I think it makes quite a difference. Your Honor, the statute applies to settlements or judgments uh, received by a Medicaid recipient uh, from a third party for Medicaid. I know, but in the settlement, they stipulate that 10 percent is for medical and the rest for pain and suffering. Now, I thought the North Carolina courts have not yet decided whether North Carolina, which would like more than 10 percent, can get it. Is that true or not true? That is not true, Your Honor. They have decided. The North Carolina Supreme Court in, in the Andrews case said. said that the key point in Allborn was the stipulation. It has nothing Allborn. to do with Allborn. Allborn, we all agree, says you cannot get more than medical uh, the medical expense, okay? The question here is how to figure that. So I thought that one way to figure it, I'll just be repeating myself, one way to figure it is how much of this $100,000 settlement is attributable to, to medical expenses is a judge would say. Now, you are telling me there is a case in North Carolina which says if the judge himself says that 10 percent of the settlement is for medical, that's not what — that doesn't matter according to North Carolina law, and I'd like the name of the case, the state case that says that. Your Honor, I'm not aware of any such case. Okay. So we don't know the answer to that. We know what you would like, but we don't know the answer. Don't you think the statute may, may give you the answer? It says uh, any attorney retained by the beneficiary shall out of the proceeds obtained on behalf of the beneficiary by settlement with, judgment against, yes. or otherwise from a third party by reason of injury or yes. death distribute to the Department the amount of assistance paid by the Department on behalf of the uh, uh, up to up to 33 percent. It, it applies to judgments as well as to uh, settlements. You answered the question with respect to jury verdicts. I suppose it would be no different if it's the judge that found the 10 percent rather than the jury. I would agree, Justice Ginsburg. The statute of Justice Ginsburg. The, the the question that Justice Breyer was asking about the 10 percent has already been answered because. We were told that if a jury allocated 10 percent to medicals, it would not make any difference. The statute entitles the state to 30 percent. Basically, you're saying the judge would be required to give you your one-third, regardless of what the jury said. Right. Exactly. As we said, he would either have to conform a jury verdict to the, to the So all those states that have um, — uh, jury verdicts, special verdicts that require a certain amount, uh, they could avoid that by just simply passing this law and avoid the anti-lien statute that way. Your Honor, it would, it would depend how the State could rationally defend their statute under their experience as consistent with their jurisprudence. Of course, tort law being 
primarily the, the — Sixteen of states already have something close to a presumption of a percentage. Do you have any evidence that in those 16 states where it's only a presumption and not a fixed amount, that they're falling apart because of it? Your Honor, I, I don't have any evidence as to the specific performance in those 16 states. That would leave 34 states that don't have one. It also would, would raise the question of how many of those states uh, — I believe the 16 states were the ones that had some sort of, of procedure, uh, some post-settlement either hearing or trial — to, to allocate uh, and In the absence of this statute, what did um, your state do beforehand? This statute dates back to 1988. Um, prior to 1988, I don't know how, uh, the, from the, the 1965 effective date of Medicaid, how things were handled. But General, certainly the last General, on your theory, am, am I correct that the North Carolina legislature could amend this statute tomorrow to make it two-thirds? Certainly, a, a statute could be amended. Whether it could be defended under under the circumstances. No, but that's what I mean. I mean, on, on your theory, it seems not to matter whether this statute says one third or two thirds. And I'm asking whether that's correct. Two part answer, Your Honor. As to the anti lien pro, uh, provision of the Medicaid Act, if the statute defines the amount of medicals as two thirty, uh, excuse me, two thirds. That would present the same analysis under the, the anti-lien provision of the Medicaid Act. The difference would be whether the state could show a rational basis in its, in its tort law, in its jurisprudence. Well, Here. Uh, I guess I'm not sure about that. I'm, in other words, I'm, I'm assuming an amendment that just all it does is it changes one-third to two-thirds. And uh, so your theory, it seems to me, would work the exact same way. And then you say, well, you need a rational basis for doing that. But I thought you told me that the one-third really doesn't have anything to do with an estimate of how much is medical and how much is not medical. So it seems that you would have the same basis to say two-thirds as you do to say one-third. Am I wrong about that? I would say, Justice Kagan, the reason it's not uh, the same is that it would treat Medicaid recipients decidedly differently than other tort litigants in North Carolina. Given the, the 1935 history of the allocation of, of tort uh, settlements and the liens in favor of the providers of medical care that pre-exist the, the North Carolina Medicaid statute, if you then change the Medicaid statute — So you're statute, saying there's a kind of side constraint that Medicaid recipients have to be treated like others. But then, presumably, the state could change everybody's. Uh, I, I believe that would, would be the case, yes. the the question would be whether there, there was any disparate treatment, any singling out of, of a Medicaid recipient. And certainly we've demonstrated that under the, the North Carolina experience, that is not the case. I, you thought you, I thought your brief said that at some point, if it gets too high, you do have a problem under the anti-lean provision of, of Medicaid. I, I believe, Your, your Honor, in response to the, uh, the 90 percent or 100 uh, percent uh, scenario or, or hypothetical, I would certainly uh, posit it would be difficult for a state to defend. Why? I don't understand that. You see, I, th the, uh, I think the only way you can defend it is that, is that the recipient never, never had a property right. Uh, once, once recovery is given to the recipient, the recovery does not belong to the recipient. And if that's true for 33 percent, it can be through, uh, true for 100 percent. 
Uh, has there ever been any litigation uh, since 1935 about uh, takings problems with the, uh, with, with the State requiring uh, um, 33 percent to go to the medical provider, even though uh, it may well be that, uh, um, that uh, less or more of that amount uh, went to medical damages? Your Honor, under the general lien statutes in Chapter 44 of the North Carolina General Statutes, Sections 49 and 50 are the two provisions that, that we cite. I'm not aware of any takings-related uh, challenges to those laws. I am aware of, of State Supreme Court opinions saying that the attorney had to distribute proceeds in accordance with the statute. Well, look, can I go back for a second? Because I want to show you where I got my perhaps mistaken idea from. There is a case called Andrews. And uh, there is a statement in Andrews, which is a South North Carolina case, which says in certain circumstances, although the statute says just what Justice Scalia said, the lawyer sits there, he takes one-third and pays it to the State. Then this case has this sentence in it. Alhorn controls when there has been a prior determination or stipulation as to the medical expense portion of a plaintiff's settlement. In those cases, the State may not receive reimbursement in excess of the portion so designated. Now, having read that sentence, I thought the law of North Carolina was that this statute does not apply and that when, in fact, the jury or the judge finds that only 10 percent was for medical expenses, the State cannot take more than 10 percent. And the same is true of a stipulation. That's what those words seem to say to me. Now, you're telling me I'm not reading those words correctly, that the, the case of Andrews does not affect our case here, and that, you, that the law of North Carolina is that you get one-third. Now, now what is it? Do you see why I'm confused? Yes, Your Honor. I'll try, try if I can, to explain this, what I believe to be the source of the confusion is. Mm -hmm. The stipulation in Alborn referenced in the Andrews decision was between the Medicaid recipient and the State of Arkansas, the lien holder. Mm -hmm. It came in the Federal Court action to challenge Arkansas's imposition of its, okay, of its lien. That. Therefore, there was a stipulation binding the State, the lien holder, that controlled an outcome. Right, they say a prior determination or stipulation. I took prior determination to mean a determination by a judge or a jury. What does it mean if it doesn't mean that? I think later in the Andrews decision you'll see a reference to the, the parties certainly have the opportunity to negotiate with the State a lesser amount. Than, than the amount of the statutory lien. That would be, that would be the de prior determination, I believe. Am I correct that what you believe and what the courts have been doing in your state, the lower courts, is that they won't approve a settlement that doesn't have the one-third and they won't enter a judgment that doesn't have the one-third? Is that correct? Your Honor, when there's a, a lump sum settlement in, in these actions, the court uh, directs the attorney for the recipient to uh, enforce the statute to protect the So I'm right. They just won't accept this private stipulation that doesn't do that, and they won't enter a judgment that doesn't do that, correct? 
Here, the, the State Court ordered the $933,000. Just answer my question. Yes, Your Honor. All right. Going back to Justice Alito's, the jury says it's less or more or whatever of, of the settlement is medical expenses. doesn't matter what they say. The Court can't enter a judgment for that amount. They have to enter a judgment for either the one-third or the full medical expenses. They have to enter a judgment, yes. And that's what they've been doing. Yes, Your Honor. And, and, and that is the rationale behind the statute, that, that the jury nor the judge can enter a judgment that's not in conformity with the statute. Could I ask you how often this comes up in North Carolina? Do you have any figures where you have a, have a dispute of this nature during the course of the year? Your Honor, I've, I've tried in, in the briefs to indicate the dollar amounts involved, uh, the numbers of cases uh, are in the hundreds, it's my understanding, because typically they involve third-party payments not just from, from medical malpractice cases, but insurance coverage uh, and other situations uh, that, that trigger the, the repayment uh, obligation. I, I don't want to take up too much time talking about Andrews, but it seems to me that what the North Carolina Supreme Court said in Andrews is that in those states where there's a prior determination that controls, but that North Carolina is entitled to adopt a different procedure and have a one-third across-the-board rule. That's the way I read. Well, well, certainly that — is that, is, does, does that accord with your understanding? Uh, Your Honor, I think they were saying two things, that other states have different procedures. Yes. And that in North Carolina, this is the rule, and that the prior determination uh, also could include a action — involving binding the state of North Carolina. I know that was argued before, but I read Auburn very carefully, and I don't see it. I read the amici briefs that reference different procedures, and not one of them referenced the North Carolina procedure. So I know that was argued before. You don't argue it in your brief here, uh, and I assumed you didn't because you did what I did which is to read Auburn carefully and read what it cited, and I don't see it cited. I'm sorry, I don't know. I don't see the North Carolina procedure referenced in Auburn as something that states could do. It wasn't referenced directly in in the opinion, and it wasn't referenced indirectly by the amici. The amici were talking about substantially different procedures. Your Honor, the, the holding in Allborn said you can't go beyond the amount represented that represents repayment for medicals. It didn't say how a state has to or could determine that, and that's the, the question. And, but my point is Justice Kennedy's question was that somehow, in that opinion, we approve the North Carolina system. Uh, Your Honor, is there a direct reference to North Carolina system ab- in not. that or in any of the amici brief that talked about different state rules? Not that I'm aware of. If there are no further questions, Your Honor, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Browning. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, <clears throat> the General Madry has steadfastly argued that the North Carolina statute overrides a jury verdict. I think his argument is well-grounded, given the language of the statute, but that illustrates the very problem here, that this statute takes one-third of a 
settlement or judgment, regardless of the true facts of the case. And that is problematic under all one. Uh, Justice Kagan, you had asked Mr. General Madry about the basis for the North Carolina statute. Um, General Madry had referred to it being a rule of thumb of three times medicals. But if you actually turn to the Fourth Circuit's decision, which is based on the briefs that were filed in the Fourth Circuit, in the petition at page 20A, the rule of thumb is actually three times specials, which, of course, is different than three times medicals, because special damages would include things like lost wages and various well, Mr. Browning, Browning um, let me give you a different rationale for this statute. It's, it's different from the one the State suggests, but it would go something like this. There's an allocation that has to be made. In making allocations, there are two ways of doing it. We can do it case-by-case individualized decision-making, or we can use some bright-line rules. And the advantage of bright-line rules is that they're cheap and efficient, and sometimes they're not more inaccurate than individualized decision-making, because in individualized decision-making, you can make errors, too. So, uh, so this is a reasonable way to make an allocation decision, and nothing that we said in Auburn suggests that a state needs to use case-by-case decision-making rather than bright-line rules to make the allocation that it needs to make between medical and non-medical damages. What about that? Well, Your Honor, I would turn to the language of the Auburn decision, which makes clear that state cannot lay claim to more than a portion of a settlement or judgment that represents payment for medical care or medical expenses. When you have — Yeah, but that doesn't answer the question. I mean, that portion, according to North Carolina, is one-third. It is the state saying it is one-third, even though there's no basis, and even though you have cases like this where it's clearly not one-third. Yeah, well, what the state says is the law. I mean, the state says one-third is for medical. Your Honor, if if that is all North Carolina had to do, of course, the Auburn decision would have been dramatically different if Arkansas had simply enacted a cap of 100 percent or — 50 percent or 40 percent, because in the Auburn decision, the state of Arkansas was only seeking to recover 39 percent of the um, tort settlement. And under North Carolina's theory, if Arkansas had simply been bright enough to implement a cap, the Auburn decision would have been completely different. And that makes absolutely no sense. I think the Auburn decision indicates that there has to be a process in order to fairly and appropriately determine uh, the amount that the state may So you need an, ultimately you need an adjudication. You have to leave it either to a jury to decide what percentage of the total award is, is, is medical expenses or have a separate proceeding, let's say, where there's been a settlement. You need a separate proceeding to decide how much of it is really for medical. You know, they may say 10 percent is, but who believes that? You, you, you need a proceeding. That is awfully time-consuming. And, and uh, as, as Justice Kagan suggests, uh, I'm not sure it's going to be very accurate. I don't think a jury determination is going, to be, is going to be accurate on that score. And I don't know how you go about determining how much of a settlement is attributable to, to medical expenses uh, versus other things, especially when the settlement itself says only 10 percent 
his medical expenses? Well, Justice Scalia, I think it, it is uh, very easy for states to follow that and to put in uh, practices or procedures that r- result in appropriate allocation of medical expenses. How, how do you do that? Yes. Uh, there, are, there are a variety of ways that states can do it. Um, uh, obviously, if Sixteen state- are doing it already. Absolutely. Sixteen and the District of Columbia have a process for appropriate adjudication. Moreover, it is, it is perfectly appropriate if a state wants to have a presumption. The problem is it can't be an irrebuttable presumption. How, how, how does it work? Because I would imagine at the negotiation you have the, the, the victim's lawyer and the tortfeasor's lawyer. And the tortfeasor's lawyer is interested that the bottom line number be as low as possible and the victim's number that it be as high as possible. And the victim's lawyer, in fact, would like as little as possible to be allocated to a source uh, which is going to take that money away from him. So they can reach agreement. What they'll do is say one penny is for medical expenses and everything else is for pain and suffering. And that's very good for the victim. And the, it's irrelevant to the tortfeasor. And so, so when you see that on a piece of paper, uh, and uh, what, what is it you're going to do? What kind of proceeding are you going to have? And, and it's a proceeding about a proceeding. It's a proceeding about the settlement negotiation. What, what's it going to look like? Just what does it look like in these 16 states? We'll, we'll have a plaintiff's lawyer testify. He'll say, Your Honor, I really wanted one penny and only one penny to be allocated to uh, pain and suffer, uh, to uh, a medical expense. And the defendant's lawyer, he's being very honest, he'll say, yeah, I didn't care if that's what he wants, fine with me. Oh, but it's you worse know, than that. So what does, happens? He does care because what? a smaller amount means that the victim is going to actually get to keep more, and that's yeah. all that the, the — uh, victim's lawyer is concerned about, and right. that's fine with the tortfeasor's lawyer because otherwise he can exactly. pay more. So what does it look like? Sorry, to Mr. Chief exactly. Justice, if I first can turn to your point and then respond to Justice Breyer. It's the same point. Well, let me say this at the outset, that first of all, um, it is our position that the parties simply can't stipulate um, or reach an agreement that somehow deprives the state of their interest. There has to be an appropriate adjudication. It's worked well in the states that have implemented this process. How does it work in those yes, states? Your Honor, and, and Justice Breyer, it, I don't think it's all of that complicated. I don't process. understand. What do you adjudicate? What is the issue in the adjudication? How much of the award should have been allocated to medical expenses? Or how much of the award was, in fact, allocated to, to medical expenses? Which is the issue? What, what should be adjudicated? It, it seems to me it should be the latter, shouldn't it? Mm-hmm. What should be adjudicated, consistent with the Auburn decision, is the portion of the settlement that represents payment for medical That's care. right. So That's and that, that How much some- was allocated, right? It doesn't matter what, what ought to have been. The issue is what proportion did the parties, in fact, allocate to medical expenses, right? Your Honor, I don't think — And they say, what any? How are you going to contradict that? We would not assert that the party's subjective belief is necessarily binding. No, no, but that but, — the same yes. question. There are 16 states that have this procedure. How does it work? Yes, and in most of those — I don't want to know that they have it. I want to know how it works. We yes. put the problem as to why it seems — it might not work too well. And, and now I would like you to tell us how it really works. How it really works in those states is the, the states will, will generally negotiate with the state Medicaid 
agency and come to a fair allocation without the necessity for a judicial determination that's appropriate. What is now, that because they know they're going to be subject to a hearing if they don't reach an agreement? Yes. So that, there's that, an inducement for them to do what this state didn't do. Correct, Your Honor. I'm told to come in, they ignored it. In those states, states know they're going to increase potentially their costs, so they come in more often. Exactly, Justice Sotomayor. Exactly it levels, what? I'm, I'm, it, it levels the playing field so that there is an incentive on both sides to, to come to an appropriate allocation. This is well, why how is it happening. Uh, I was just saying, how do we know what's fair and appropriate? You, you come in, let's say you have $20,000 in medical expenses and a claim for pain and suffering. And they come in, they recover a million dollars, right? So what's appropriate in that case? The other side will say, well, we settled on a million dollars. Pain and suffering was really 20 million, and we came down to a million. So what's fair allocation in the case of the medical expenses? It seems to be an entitled, entirely artificial judgment. To the extent it's not, it depends upon the views of the two parties negotiating. And I thought we established that that's entirely subject to uh, manipulation. Your Honor, it is a process that the courts can determine based upon the experience of the judge, that who generally would be very experienced in the valuation of cases, can make an appropriate decision, and can consider all the facts. The Counsel, equity does, do judges do this in non-Medicaid cases regularly? Oh, absolutely. They do it in North Carolina in the context of workers' compensation liens having to come up with an appropriate allocation, and there the court Let, has Let's deal with what appears to be many of my colleagues' gut instinct, okay? This is cost too much. It's too burdensome. You've already answered why not. But in the end, they don't believe you could ever figure out the number. That's really their bottom line, that this number is artificial no matter what you do. So you might as well just throw a label on it, reasonable or not, and leave it alone. How do you answer that argument? Because that's the essence of their, of their belief. That Your Honor, this bottom line allocation is always going to be wrong. So it's a little better than that, but go ahead and answer. <laughs> <laughs> Justice Sotomayor, uh, the the concern, of course, is that. Uh, forgive me, I've lost my train of thought here, um, Chief. Well, Chief this is what I envision happening. Uh, if the if the parties can't come, to, if the state and the uh, and the recipient of the uh, Medicaid assistance can't come to an agreement. Basically, you have to make an estimate of what the damages would have been if the case had been tried. And then you determine that the medical ex- portion of the damages would have been 15 percent. And so you reduce, then you take the amount of the settlement, and the amount of the settlement that is attributable to the medical expenses is 15 percent. That would be what I would envision. Is that not correct? Your Honor, that is, that is certainly an approach similar to Auburn, a proportionality sort of review. You, you, you look at how much you're able to recover versus the um, amount, the amount of the total claim versus the amount of the settlement, and you now, come and that to seems an appropriate. Very, that seems really very complicated. How well, can a judge, where the case is settled and the judge doesn't really know anything about the proof, how is a judge going to be in a position really to do that? Your Honor, it is a matter of the parties coming forward, presenting evidence as to the damages in the case, perhaps an explanation as to why the case settled for less than full value, 
and the court using their experience to determine um, is this appropriate? Should there be any reductions? Is, and that, of course is that what happened? You said you, that, that in North Carolina for workers' compensation, for settlements that are subject to workers' compensation liens, you have this kind of system. Yes, in the so, context so of third-party liability. How does it work for uh, workers' compensation recoveries if, that have the same thing? Uh, they, they owe the state for the medical Yes, Your Honor. The, the statute, um, uh, the North Carolina statute, directs in, in that lien situation for the court to consider the likelihood that the plaintiff would have actually recovered on the claim and various other factors that the court deems appropriate, and it puts it in the discretion of the court. What we're saying here is that Auburn requires that there must be a determination of the portion of the settlement that represents payment. Counsel, in those proceedings, uh, are witnesses called, or is it usually done on papers? It's usually done in a fairly expedited process. Yes, Your Honor. You know, putting it it in the discretion of the court, as you say, is done in the workman's compensation, is quite different from what you're proposing here. That seems to me quite workable. You know, uh, the, the court hears the evidence and he decides how much should be reimbursed within, within the court's discretion. But here you're, you're asking a court to decide how much of a recovery or how much of a settlement was attributable to, to the medical I, I think it needs That's to be — That's a totally different question. Justice Scalia, I think it's an objective determination. I don't think the parties can skew it one way because of the way they structure the settlement just because — just as the State can't skew it the other way because they have an arbitrary number, whether it be 100 percent, 90 percent, 75 percent, that doesn't allow for the fact Are you satisfied — You've you've said several times that the way that you do this is based on the judge's experience and so on uh, with with the cases. And I think what your your friend on the other side is saying is that's pretty much what's going on here, except over time — I mean, would it be all right if over time the judge says, well, typically sometimes it's 25 percent, sometimes it's 35 percent. Over time, it's sort of — 33 percent. And so we're going to have that as an absolute rule so that we don't have to go through these proceedings every time just to make sure that it's 30 percent rather than 33 percent. I guess it's Justice Kagan's question. What's wrong with the right-line rule here? Uh, There would be nothing wrong with a rule that creates a presumption. What is the problem is you have cases that are on the extremes, like this case, where you have absolutely horrendous injuries and a physician who, who doesn't have the financial wherewithal to pay for the extent of the damages that he caused. Here, EMA's guardian had no option but to settle the case for the available funds of $2.8 million. But that is a far cry from how anyone would objectively so you're, you're, you're satisfied with the presumption. Is there any law here that gives you a leg up? I mean, is this like Chevron or Skidmore or something like that? Um, Your Honor, I, I certainly think in this case the, the fact that the United States Department of Health and Human Services has filed an amicus brief that um, points out that 
this sort of irrebuttable presumption, this sort of — I know, I know that's their position, but my question is, is, does the law mean that when we decide this case, I, I see you have a reasonable point, they have a reasonable point, that if both points are reasonable, you get the benefit of some kind of legal presumption like Chevron, Skidmore, et cetera. Maybe you can think of another one. I don't know. Do you or don't you? Your Honor, I think it would be appropriate to give Chevron deference to the — arguments of the United States. The well, we're dealing with the North Carolina statute. Don't they get deference along the same lines? Uh, no, Your Honor. I don't think w- — w- the, the starting point has to be the federal statute, Medicaid's anti-lien provision, which is very clear that no lien may be imposed. Well, it can't be very clear because CMS took the opposite position before this case, right? I, I don't think that they took the opposite position. With regard to the letter that was sent to Congressman um, uh, Cobalt, that that was a an employee who was not within a policy-making decision who has to field um, thousands of these sort of um, requests for information coming into CMS. So I don't think we can put a whole lot of credence on that particular letter that has been expressly disavowed by the Secretary and the Director of CMS. Could I ask you a question on, a, on this different point? Could the — suppose the North Carolina legislature passed a statute that says something like the following. In any tort action in which an item of damages sought is medical expenses, the plaintiff may not recover for any other item of damages until the full amount of the medical expenses is satisfied. Now, there they're just restructuring their tort law. Would there be a problem with that? Uh, Your Honor, I, I think in the case of the anti-lien provision, that that would effectively circumvent the anti-lien provision and allow by the back door what we would contend would not be um, the state cannot do directly. So, yes, I do see potential problems with that. Obviously, it would be different than the scenario that we have here, but it does — the starting point has to be the anti-lien provision, which is no lien may be imposed. This Court in Auburn assumed without deciding that there would be an implied exception to that statute. But that that exception is very limited. It has to be in the context of, um, as this Court recognized, a state can only lay claim to that portion of the settlement that represents payment for medical care. So did, until did you the, have — federal law — did federal law require your client to seek compensation for medical expenses? No, Your Honor. I don't believe that there is a requirement that uh, Medicaid beneficiaries would have to file a suit and try to recover medical expenses. So you could have — could you have filed suit and disclaimed any any claim for medical expenses? You only want to be compensated for other things? Uh, if — first of all, there would be some medical expenses that wouldn't be Medicaid — medical expenses that were incurred by the family. But — Moreover, even in that scenario, I think given the language of the North Carolina statute, the state would still be seeking one-third. So if one were to take that route, it would be extremely treacherous route that you would be um, not being able to, to get full, full recovery from the defendant, but still having to be paying a third to the state of North yeah, Carolina. Yeah, but it would be the defendant who's, uh, who's, who's jiggering the system, I mean. Uh, not suing for the medical portion uh, simply because uh, the defendant knows that 
at least uh, some of that portion, if not all of it, would, would, go, to, would go to the state. So in, in a situation such as yours where the total recovery is, is not going to uh, suffice to cover both pain and suffering and medical expenses, it would be very intelligent to do what uh, uh, Justice Alito proposed. And that seems to me a real, uh, I don't know, gaming, gaming of the system. I don't think it would be a gaming of the system, Justice Scalia. The state, based upon the statute, based upon its previous directives, would expect uh, the Medicaid beneficiary to seek recovery of those claims and to remit one-third to the state. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. Ms. Anders. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, uh, to start with the types of procedures that states may use to uh, allocate medical damages, I think the states have a broad range of discretion to determine what should be an appropriate allocation. They're not Can determining. Move the microphone so a little closer to you. Sorry. Thank you. Well, don't adjust. Uh, is this better? Yeah. Thanks. So the states are not determining. They're not trying to reconstruct what the plaintiffs and the defendants' intent was uh, in entering into the settlement. Often there will be no shared intent. What, what the states are doing is determining what the appropriate allocation should be. And the states that have individualized determinations, which is what we think is required here, have developed a number of different procedures for doing that. Uh, for instance, uh, a district court in, in Pennsylvania, in McKinney. Excuse me. I have a I have a theoretical problem right at the outset. I mean, what the statute uh, forbids is asserting a lien on recovery that is for medical expenses. And you're telling me that the states aren't even trying to find out what portion of the recovery was for medical expenses. They're looking to determine what proportion should have been for medical expenses. How how does that tie in with 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 the prohibition of the lien? Well, I think this Court established in Alborn that the beneficiary and the State, they respectively have interests in the settlement that arises from the fact that in, in the tort case, the plaintiff has asserted claims for medical damages and for non-medical damages. And so Alborn establishes that we need to divide the two in order to determine what the State may recover. Alborn also establishes that the beneficiary has an interest in the settlement that arises from her non-medical claims that can be allocated away by an allocation method such as one that gives — that says that 100 percent of the settlement must always be allocated to, to medical damages. So you're saying that, that the State can — in making this determination, in fact, take away from a plaintiff who has recovered a, a greater amount in medical expenses or a lesser amount in medical expenses, can take, take away that by determining how much should have been allocated to medical expenses, right? The State does have some discretion to determine what the appropriate So you're messing up is. the lien law anyway, no matter, no matter which way you play it. Well, I think Albert establishes that we have to make some kind of division of the settlement. And when the parties haven't done it, there's no jury determination. We don't know ahead of time, before the allocation has been done, what precisely the amount of medical damages should be. But we do know, because the plaintiff, the beneficiary, has asserted non-medical claims and she has compromised them, we do know that she has an interest in the settlement that arises from her non-medical claims. So, for instance, you can imagine a situation in which uh, a plaintiff has a, a claim a — claim that is 10 percent medical damages and 90 percent past lost wages. So they're both equally concrete. In that situation, when the plaintiff settles for pennies on the dollar, I think 
we, we would have serious questions about whether a one-third allocation to medical damages in that case would be appropriate. But without an individualized determination, there will be no way to know whether this is a case in which the, the blanket rule that the State has is actually overestimating the amount that should be uh, appropriately Mrs. allocated to medical damages. Could you please uh, finish your response when you said various States do various things? Could you describe some of them? Uh, certainly. So, for instance, in McKinney versus Philadelphia Housing Authority, this is a district court case in Pennsylvania, what the court did was it said, uh, we have the settlement, we know how much the past medical damages were because we know what the medical bills were, and we can, we can assume that the jury, had this case gone to trial, would have awarded 100 percent of the medical damages because they were provable and because there weren't disputes about that. And so the court then said, I'm — I'm going to then apply a, a, a discount rate for the uncertainty that the defendant would have been held liable. Is that all. a reasonable — this is the Federal District Court? That was the Federal District Court. So it's not a State procedure? Uh, the P- Pennsylvania law uh, — that case happened to be in Federal Court. Pennsylvania law provided a, uh, a, a rebuttable presumption, and so the, the Court determined what if, that. What if the other — the parties, I guess, or, or come in and say, well, that's not how juries — work. They don't care that this measure of damages is particularly calculable. They come to a general view. You've got medical expenses. You've got pain and suffering. They make a judgment about that. Would that be a good argument to make? Uh, I think the Court could take that into account in allocating, yes. So some — So how would it take it into account? You said, well, because the medical expenses are readily calculable, we assume that that's what the jury meant first, and then the other stuff is extra, so the State can get it. But maybe sometimes they just come to a, a, a total figure and they don't care how it's allocated. You say, well, that's an argument they can make. Well, what's a judge supposed to do in a particular case? Well, I, we're, this is positing a situation in which there's been a settlement rather than a jury determination. So I, I think that it, the, the court that's doing the allocating has, has some discretion here. And so one thing it can do is say, I'm going to essentially prioritize medical damages because I think juries usually will award them. But uh, a state could also provide that um, the, the, the inquiry should be more equitable and open-ended. So, for instance, um, Illinois and Missouri have provided simply that, that the court shall make an equitable allocation. It can take into account the fact that the, that the plaintiff uh, may receive a double recovery. Um, do you like agree, do you agree that the only flaw in the North Carolina statute is that it's a fixed amount, uh, but if it were a rebuttable presumption, it would be okay? If the North Carolina law said 30 percent is the cap, but in a particular case you can show that that's not a fair allocation. That's absolutely right. And, and, and to return to one of Justice Kagan's earlier questions, I think uh, a one-third allocation may be, in the mine run of cases, a, a reasonable presumption. But there will be some cases, like my 90 percent, 10 percent example, uh, where, where it isn't a reasonable allocation. And those rebuttable presumption states, can both sides come in and try to rebut it? So uh, the, in, the individual beneficiary can try to rebut it, but the state could as well? Or is it just a — uh, a right for the beneficiary to try to rebut the presumption? Uh, I, think, I think in those states it's just a right for the beneficiary to try to rebut the presumption. Some of those states start with a rebuttable presumption of full reimbursement, so that the presumption starts at the full amount that the state paid. So this is a real significant increase in the burden on the state in the, the Medicaid program. You're saying, yes, you can try to recover uh, uh, recovery from third-party tort feasors. But if you do that, you've got to set up this apparatus where everybody can come in and you've got to prove what the allocation was and all that. So, I mean, some, as 
34 states haven't done that, right? Well, I think what's more significant for our purposes is that 16 states plus D.C. have. And what well, yeah, for your purposes, that. but I'm, I'm interested in, in my purposes, and I'm trying to figure out whether or not that's a significant financial burden on the state if they're going to go about trying to recover this money, that they've got to provide some apparatus, administrative, judicial, whatever, to make a calculation that I still don't understand what it's addressed to. And, and in, not only that, but even if you do know what it's addressed to, you just take into account all these things and come up with an equitable. I don't think that these states have found that it's a significant administrative burden. One reason is that once the allocation rules are in place, it's our understanding that most of these cases settle. The beneficiary and the state agree as to what the allocation is, so this doesn't go to a hearing in the first place. But even, even when there are hearings, I think states can take significant measures to, how, to lessen the burden. For instance, United, how many United states, states have North Carolina's rule? Do you know? Uh, there are there are five other states like North Carolina that have an irrebuttable presumption with a cap. There are uh, there are ten others that have a, a irrebuttable presumption. We think of full reimbursement, but but I should I should caveat that by saying that we simply don't know in those states what they do, uh, what their practices are. Well, if you why, why isn't uh, the missing part here? Maybe I just missed it. But we're interpreting a statute, and the part that trumps the lien provision is the part that says the state is entitled to payment that has been made for medical assistance for health care items and some other similar languages in the statute. They think their one-third rule is a good way of measuring that. You think that the one-third rule as a rebuttable presumption is a better way of measuring that. Now, normally or often I would see government arguments like that where they'd say, and by the way, we're interpreting very technical language in our statute. And Chevron and or Skidmore means that you should give us particular weight. Is that part of your argument here? And if it isn't, why isn't it? Well, I, we think that the position reflected in our brief is HHS's considered position, and, and we do think that it is, it is persuasive. Now, HHS presumably could regulate. Uh, it, it could, you know, go through notice and common rulemaking and so you don't, rules. I don't, my impression is that you get Chevron deference on the basis of whether Congress, and there's some, a lot of rules and so forth, but, but we haven't claimed Chevron you haven't claimed it, and, and I, so that puzzled me. And I don't. I'm not saying you argue what you want to argue, but I, this is awfully technical language. It's a minor interstitial point. I'm not sure that HHS has uh, has authority over yeah, over it. over how a state uh, recovers. Uh, maybe that's, I mean, it. Maybe that's I, it. I don't see that it's part of the administration of the statute uh, committed to HHS. So I, you know. I, I admire you're not citing Chevron. Well, HHS has — the statute requires the states to, to enact reasonable measures uh, for recovery. HHS thinks that a measure that circumvents the anti-lien provision like North Carolina's wouldn't be a reasonable measure, but there aren't regulations on that subject. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, General Madry, you have three minutes remaining. We've heard a lot about what a state could or maybe should do, but what must a state do under the Medicaid Act to fulfill its obligations? The Fourth Circuit and respondents and apparently the United States say they have to have a post-settlement trial, I guess a trial to settle the settlement. And that, while an available option, is not a mandatory requirement under anything that I can see in the Medicaid Act. Well, General, 
How about this? Uh, I mean, what, I'm having a little bit of trouble here because I, I think a state could come in, or uh, I think there's a reasonable argument that a state could come in and say, uh, we, you know, we've made an estimate, and uh, here's our best estimate, and we don't think that there's a need for individualized decision-making on top of that. But as I understand your argument, that is not what you are saying. You are making a very different kind of argument, suggesting that you can peg this number any place, no matter uh, what the relationship between the number and the actual allocation of cases, uh, allocation of medical and non-medical damages in the real world. So if that's the case, what do I do? Your Honor, the statute, North Carolina's statute, defines the amount that must be included for the repayment uh, by the Medicaid recipient. It's not guessing after the fact, but instead providing in advance the recipe as to how to put the settlement together. It tells the parties what they have to do. And that makes it a bright-line rule, which I think you need to compare to the alternative, which is this — this — what the Fourth Circuit called a true value hearing after the fact, after the settlement. How did — how did they get there? Is it what they did or what they should have done or what they could have done? In this case, you've got a $42 million damage claim settled for $2.8 So how do, what do we do with the federal statute that says you're not entitled to a lien of any amount that's greater than your medical expenses? And using the Solicitor General's office example, everybody knows that the true value of medical expenses in a particular case was only 10 percent. You're still getting 30 percent. How do we — how do we honor the terms of the federal statute? Because the state statute says the state never recovers more than its actual medical expenses. If in that hypothetical the medical expenses were 100,000 or 10 percent, the North Carolina statute would say North Carolina gets up to one-third of the settlement, but never more than they paid. So by definition, it can't be for something that was not medicals. And that's the bright line rule that the North Carolina statute creates. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.